with me again to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we'll come again to verses 1 through 6. If you recall, last week we began in verses 1 through 6, and we'll pick up at verse 4 and look at 4, 5, and 6 today. The title is Proving and Confessing the Truth. So this is part two of the message that we began last week, last year, and it's a fitting I think, topic and passage for the church at the end of one year and the beginning of the next, the, the idea of the necessity and the importance of standing upon the truth. This passage holds great importance in our day because false teachers and false believers, false professors are rampant. And part of their battle plan, I think we see as time goes by more and more, part of the battle plan of those who are false is that they seek to bring together in unity a diversity of beliefs, diversity uh, of understanding and application of truth. And I'll explain that. It's those who seek to kind of find the lowest common denominator of the truth. They'll say things like, I believe in God. I consider myself a Christian, and I even believe in the Bible. And, and while we don't set out, we ought never set out with the goal of isolating ourselves or being polarizing or ending up on an island by ourselves, what we need to realize is that type of open-mindedness, that type of, of diversity of belief is not biblical Christianity. It's not healthy. It's not Christianity. John tells us what? To test all things to test the spirits. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 that they ought to examine everything carefully, they ought to hold fast to what is good, and to abstain from every form of evil. This is the duty that we have as followers of Christ. We talked last week about the Bereans. We are to be like the Bereans, examining everything. We receive the word eagerly, but we examine everything carefully against the backdrop of Scripture. So with that in mind, let's come to the text. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Would you please stand with me as we read God's Word? This is holy, inerrant, inspired Scripture, the very Word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world hates and listens to them. But we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us, and by this we know the spirit of truth 
and the spirit of error. This is God's word. May he write it upon our hearts to sanctify our souls so that we glorify his name. You may be seated. And would you join with me and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come and we give you praise and honor and glory. For you and you alone are worthy to receive the praises of your people. You're the sovereign over all creation. You are, as Isaiah heard the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. All of your creation, Lord, comes together to declare your praise, to honor you, to magnify your great name. Lord, may the desire of our hearts be that we join in that chorus of praise, both in word and in deed. Lord, may we not only praise you with our lips, but may we live lives that declare your greatness, your power over us, your power in us, your power through us. Lord, we thank you for the great, lasting, unending hope that we have in Christ. Lord, for if Christ had not taken on our flesh, went to the cross to take upon himself our punishment, if it were not for that sacrificial and saving work, we would have no hope. We'd be lost and dead in our sins. Lord, may we glory in the cross. May we glory in the Savior of the cross. Pray, God, as we come to your word, to your truth, to your instruction. Pray that you would ready and prepare our hearts. Lord, grant us to be humble. Grant us to have eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that receive and apply the truth. Lord, if we study only in mind and the word does not make it into our hearts, we have gathered in vain. Knowledge by itself, Lord, puffs up. We pray, Lord, that we would have knowledge in the heart, which humbles, which breaks us, which brings us to repentance, which puts wind in our sail, which gives us strength as we seek and strive to stand firm in dark and evil days. Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would write your word upon our hearts. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the word before us. If your spirit does not move, we will be helpless and we will be unable to receive and apply the word as we ought. So I ask, Lord, by the power of your spirit that you would 
instruct us, reprove us, rebuke us, and correct us in patience and grace and kindness. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Pray that we would stand upon the truth until Christ returns or until you call us home. For all these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So to begin, I'm going to kind of rehash some of what we looked at last time, retread some of that ground because really this passage goes together and there's just so much here we couldn't really get to it all in one week. But I want to set the context of verses 1 through 3 so we're able to understand what we see in verses 4 through 6. This instruction, as we mentioned last time, is unpopular in this day, the call to test the spirits to test the words and the actions of all people. That's not going to win or gain you friends. Nobody wants to consider the call and the command to test the spirits, but the Bible commands it of us. If you do this, you will be considered arrogant and bigoted. You will be called a fundamentalist, a legalist, You will be called a Pharisee. You will be mocked, slandered, and disliked. This is a command of Scripture, and it's not only a command from John. Jude 1 verse 3. Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 talks about defending your hope. Paul in places like Romans 16, 17 through 19. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 29 and Referenced earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Even the church of Ephesus in, Roman, in Revelation 2, verse 2, tests and confirms the words spoken by others to see whether or not they are from God. And this is not only a New Testament thing. It was done in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy 18, verse 22. Job 34, verse 4. Proverbs 14, verse 15 and Proverbs 18, verse 17, just to name a few. And even with all of this biblical, scriptural backing, when you offer a biblical evaluation of the message or the life of another, you're going to get pushback. You're going to be disliked. It's not going to be received well. And I'm not talking about those who are self-righteous and judgmental and arrogant, and unreasonable, and hypercritical, but even a humble, loving, gracious, patient, biblical assessment of another person's life is not going to be received by the world, because the world loves its sin. May that never be true of us as the followers of Christ, that we love our sin so much that the scriptures cannot be brought to bear on our lives. This is a command of Scripture, and that's what we strive to follow. And so that's kind of what we set out then from, from that idea. The, the goal and the thesis of this text is that Christ's followers must test all they hear. And we overcome the world by holding to the truth and submitting to God's word as it is proclaimed by God's messengers. 
Ultimately, dear friends, we overcome by the power that works in us, the power of the Holy Spirit. But how does the Spirit work? Through the Word, through the preaching and teaching of the Word. So we test all that we hear and we overcome the world by the powerful working of the Spirit through the truth. So John sets this text up. He gives a command in verse 1, and then the next five verses are kind of these contrasting ideas of those who are from God and those who are from the evil one. We're looking at this with six imperative statements, one for each verse. The first one was to test the spirits. Verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Testing the spirits, we saw, was the idea of testing the words and the actions. You can't see or hear a spirit, but you can see and hear the outworking and the message of those who falsely proclaim the word. You can see how it doesn't align with God's truth and how it doesn't produce practical holiness in its hearers. It's important to note that at least to some extent we test with the goal, with the hope of approving and receiving. That helps you guard against having an overly critical spirit. When you test the spirits, your hope and your desire is not that you have to label a person or their teaching as false, but that you're able to receive it and prove it, and apply it to your life. And this is important to do because John says many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many. They're prevalent. They're everywhere. So the first contrast then that John gives after that command is this contrast of confession. We saw that we need to confess the truth and identify the faults. Confess the truth. We need to know the truth. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That was the the argument. The, The big problem in John's day was the Gnostics. They said Jesus came, but he wasn't God in the flesh. He was just God here. Because flesh is evil, spirit is good, so he couldn't have been fully God and fully man at the same time. Every spirit that denies that Jesus Christ has come fully and truly in the flesh is not from God. And for clarity, that is those who deny the humanity of Christ. So we all understand, I think especially as we work through this book, Knowing Christ, we understand that we grapple with this truth. That, that we struggle to understand two natures coming together as one. So we're not talking about those who, who seek to understand and rightly apply these ideas in our own lives, but those who outright deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. To deny this or other basic Christian doctrines, such as the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the, to reject the notion of, of salvation by faith and repentance, to reject these basic biblical truths puts you outside the faith. So John says, test the spirits. Know how you might confess the truth and 
all who confess the truth are from God. And the importance of this is that we are also called to identify those who are false. Verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you've heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. This is clear and basic information. Those who deny Christ are from and of the spirit of the Antichrist. They're false, they're phony, and they ought not be trusted. We must identify this falsehood and quickly and strongly reject it and have nothing to do with this deceit. Hard lines must be drawn, not because we're the arbiters of the truth, but because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So we draw these lines because our duty as the Lord's people is that we stand up for and support and hold fast and hold forth the word of life. Think back to John chapter 6. We studied this a few months back. That, that, that story where just massive crowds had, had come to follow Jesus. And he could have kept them all right there to side. He could have given them a, a, a good gospel proclamation and probably not driven them away. But rather, he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood because Jesus wanted to see who was false. He knew who was false, but he wanted them to identify themselves, and he drove them away with such a statement as that. He didn't try to bring in the crowds. He tried to identify who was true with a true proclamation of the gospel. We're not the creators of the truth, but we're the conservators of the truth. We are to conserve it, to hold on to it, to defend it. We don't define the truth. We defend the truth. We stand upon it. We boldly identify what is false and counter that by proclaiming what is true. We separate from the world in holy living and in pure biblical doctrine. That's what makes us the holy ones, the saints, those who are set apart because of our holy lives and our holding on to the pure truth of God's word. So that brings us to verses 4 through 6. Three more imperatives to consider today. We must overcome the world, we must resist the worldly, and we must receive the truth. We must overcome the world. Verse 4. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, if any of you guys are, are really thinking right now, you said these are imperative statements. There's nothing imperative in verse 4. There's nothing that we are called to do. This is a definitive declaration of our standing in Christ, and it is a glorious reminder. And so we'll begin with the idea of this declaration, and then that will lead us into application and how John exhorts us with this statement. You are from God, and you have overcome the world. This is victory over the world and the worldly. And dear friend, it ought to cause you to rejoice 
And it ought to cause you to live in light of this victory. And this is not the charismatic idea of being a conqueror. If you've ever listened to the charismatics, you know, you will conquer your, your fears, your past, your sins, your present troubles, your, you'll conquer everything. You are a conqueror. That's not the idea here. The idea is that because Jesus came bursting forth from the tomb, you have overcome the world because he overcame sin and he overcame death. This is the present reality of the future description seen in Revelation 12, 11. The saints overcame Satan, the great dragon. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. That is how we overcome. That is why John is able to say, you have overcome them, because of the blood of the Lamb. You are from God, not because of works of righteousness that you have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. You are from God. Ask the question, does the joy of this promise and hope mark your life? Is it revealed in your countenance? Is it revealed in your conversation? Do, do you show the joy of one who's been given eternal life only by the grace of God? Christians should be the most joyful of all people. And this great assuring hope. In light of this battle, again, think about the forces at work here. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. Satan, the great evil one who, who tempted and deceived Adam and Eve into the garden and, and through that sin... All men fell. It's a great battle. That's a great hope. You are from God, and you have overcome the evil one through the finished work of Christ at the cross. And dear friends, we rejoice in light of that. And we rest in that promise. But why? Why can John say with such surety, with such confidence that you have overcome them. It is a done deal. You will not be lost. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. How does John say that? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So yes, you overcome because of the finished work of Calvary. You overcome because Christ rose from the dead and showed that he has the keys to the entire kingdom, that he has overwhelmed and conquered sin and death. But you have further assurance even than that. The power of the Holy Spirit of God at work in you. The Spirit, the seal of your salvation. We read from John 16 last week. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Earlier that evening, this was the night before Jesus went to the cross, in John 14, verse 23, earlier that evening, he said, if anyone loves me, my father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. How is that done? It's through the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
So we take heart, dear friends, because Christ has conquered sin and death. Your sins have been cast as far away from you as east is from west. And you rest and you glory in that. We find great encouragement and great strength through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit had always been at work and active in salvation. No soul, Old Testament, New Testament, had ever come to saving faith in Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. But we know in this mysterious way that we may not fully understand, after Christ had come and when he returned to glory, there was this power in this work of the Holy Spirit that was new and fresh and powerful. Jesus said, it's to your benefit that I go away, because the Spirit will come. Dear friend, when the Spirit does not, you know, we talked about joy a moment ago. When the Spirit does not control your mind, you miss out on the joy of assurance of salvation. When you let your mind be attacked by all the falsehoods and all the deceit and all the deception that Satan will bring, when you're not controlled by the Spirit, you lose the joy of assurance. And when the Spirit doesn't control your actions, you lose the joy of obedience. As a saint, as a follower of Christ, you should take great joy in doing what He commands. His commands are not burdensome. It brings you joy to do as your Father and as your Savior has commanded. So when the Spirit doesn't control your your mind, you lose the joy of assurance. And when He doesn't control your actions, you lose the joy and satisfaction of obedience. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so that kind of thrusts us, I think, into the idea of, of exhortation and, and, and application. Again, John says, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. You have overcome the world. There is present implication to that. First John 3, 9 and 10 John said, no one who is born of God practices sin. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God. You have overcome them. Therefore, you must, by the Spirit working in you, practice righteousness. You are from God and your life must reflect His holiness. His character, his love, his patience, his goodness. Your life ought not reflect the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. You don't think like the world. You don't act like the world. You don't live like the world. You don't love like the world. You don't speak like the world because you are from God. You speak, you think. You act, you live, you love like a saint, like one who is called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. I think one reason, maybe a prevalent reason, that Christians struggle with worldliness is that our churches... And our Christian friendships fail to encourage separation from the world. So the reason that you and I have to battle against worldliness, at least in part, 
is because we collectively and we as, as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ don't encourage one another enough to be separated from the world. We are set apart. We're to be in the world but not of it. That ought to mark the way that we live and communicate together. And it's a mighty and strenuous work. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit is greater than the power of the spirit of Satan. Does your life reflect the powerful working of the spirit? You have increasing victory over sin. You have increasing victory over the lusts of your flesh. Or do you give in more and more to temptation? Are you patient? Or are you quick-tempered? Are you gentle? Or are you harsh? Are you joyful? Are you smug and dry and angry? Your charge, because of your standing in Christ, your charge is to overcome the world and the ways of the world. You pursue a display presently of the victory that you will experience and walk in in eternity. We need to lean into this battle. We need to fight this battle courageously, moment by moment, day by day, month by month, and year by year. Spurgeon said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. Without the Spirit of God, we're like ships without the wind. So I'm telling you, you have to fight this battle. But the way that you fight it is by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit because greater is the Spirit of God who is in you than the Spirit of the world. So we must overcome the world, and then flowing out of that, we must reject the worldly. Reject the worldly. Verse 5, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. So this kind of begins a contrast that we'll see in verses 5 and 6 between the false prophets and the true proclaimers of God's word. As we read that, just think about what we're reading here. They're from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Do you see that self-perpetuating worldliness? False teachers speak as from the world. The world then listens to them, and it just continues on and on and on. They're from the world. That marks how they speak. It marks how they teach. And then worldly people accumulate to themselves teachers who will, what, itch their ears, who, who will tell them what they want to hear. Worldly people like worldly teaching. If there's such thing, and I don't think there is, but if there's such thing as a worldly Christian, assuredly they would want worldly Bible teachers. But really what John tells us is worldly Christians, with the quotes around Christian, are, are, are not of God. They're displaying the spirit of the Antichrist, just like the false teachers. So let's think about worldliness, because we're to reject the worldly. John has talked about this in chapter 2, 1 John 2, verses 15 and following. 
Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Worldliness is a downward spiral into sin. The flesh conceives these lusts and desires, and you chase after them, you follow them, and you commit sin. Guess what? That sin doesn't satisfy. So you commit the lust of the flesh, and then comes the lust of the eyes. You look around, and you see more, and you want more, and so then you strive after more, seeking to satisfy this sinful worldliness. Guess what? doesn't satisfy. You chase the lust of the flesh. You chase the lust of the eyes and what's left but the boastful pride of life. The things of the world don't satisfy, so maybe you'll be satisfied by vain glory and pride and selfish ambition. So you give in to the pursuit of that as well. And again, guess what? It never, never satisfies. There's one thing that we need to understand as believers. It's that every sin never satisfies. The pursuit of worldliness will leave you only miserable in pursuing more worldliness because you will never get what you want or need. So this is what it means to be from the world. They are from the world, it's this impulsive, almost, following after sinful desires. You see that if you've ever seen someone who's in this downward spiral, you see that it's just almost impulsive action to go and follow after sinful desires. This unbound pursuit of ungodly desire is common today. It's all too common. It's really the way of the world today. But we ought to recognize it. We ought to publicly identify it, and it needs to be resisted by the church. This unbridled following after worldliness needs to be cut off from our lives. It's like Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We need to cut off this arm of the flesh. And if you don't understand, if you don't realize, and if you fail to admit that worldliness is encroaching on us at, at just really uh, a pace that we can't even fathom. Dear friend, your eyes are closed, your head is buried in the sand, and really all that's going to happen if you refuse to understand that worldliness is attacking us, all that's going to happen is you're going to be sucked into it, but for the grace of God. One thing I want to mention here, because I do think This is important. It needs to be considered rightly and carefully. But as parents, when we deal with children who are not yet in Christ, they're not saved, they don't have a new heart, they don't have the Holy Spirit, there are still things that we can do for them to prepare them to belong to the Lord and to walk with the Lord. 
One thing that we need to do as parents is teach our children discipline and self-denial because the world teaches them one thing, and that is you just blindly pursue whatever you want. And that is a massive reprogramming that has to be done when the Lord saves them if we do them the disservice of not trying to accomplish that in their lives. It's like teaching them the Scripture. When you read the Scripture to your little two-year-old who doesn't understand really anything that you're reading, they're, they're not applying the Word by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you're teaching them the importance of hearing and applying and submitting to God's word. And it's the similar type of idea. Teach your children to deny themselves and to be disciplined. Oh, by the way, maybe we ought to consider teaching ourselves the same thing at times. Self-denial and self-discipline are practices that, that you'll often be called, I guess, legalistic or just over the top. Dear friends, we need to order our lives in such a way that we're able to resist the attacks of the world. And one way that's done is when we're disciplined and don't just blindly give in to every thought and every desire and just blurt out the first thing that comes to our mind all the time. They're from the world. John doesn't just talk about this worldly living. He says that they also speak as from the world. Matthew Henry said about this, they profess a worldly Messiah and Savior. They project a worldly kingdom and dominion. These possessions and treasures of the world, they would engross to themselves, forgetting that the true Redeemer's kingdom, Henry says and reminds, is not of this world. Now, hopefully some of you, many of you maybe are, are, are ignorant to some of the battles and discussions going on among a lot of evangelicals today, even in the reform circle uh, of this kingdom, this, they call it the idea of Christian nationalism, where, you know, we're just going to pursue a, a, a Christ-centered nation, and, and that's great. We ought to desire biblical laws. We ought to desire people, lawmakers, who will honor the Lord. But there are many today who are so obsessed with a worldly kingdom and a worldly dominion, and we need to take care that we don't fall prey to that same mindset and let that idea be over-realized. So there are those who even draw in Scripture. They try to, they, and I think it's people who even love the Lord, they, they want to, to bring about the kingdom and the return of Christ, and they want to do it by, by going and proclaiming the gospel, and, and that really is our goal. That really is our work. We don't need to be consumed and obsessed with present victory. Because the, the ultimate victory comes when Christ returns and brings about and sets up his eternal kingdom. James Montgomery Boyce, Presbyterian pastor really from the late 19. Hundreds, he said that this is the world's philosophy, even if it's dressed up in Christian language. And it's presented by those who claim to be Christian teachers. We need a biblical, systematic theology and discernment against things like this and all other worldly ideas. This applies well beyond just this one topic. But the duty and the goal and the work of the church 
is to influence society from the bottom up. That is, we go out and we work out and walk out the Great Commission. We make disciples, we teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded, and by God's grace, if he chooses to to return the United States from this path of debauchery and sin and judgment, that's the Lord's work. We go and faithfully preach and proclaim Christ. So how do we guard against these types of, of worldly teachers? They're from the world. They speak as from the world. And here's how we guard against them and identify them. We see that the world listens to them. When somebody has the ear of worldly people, dear friend, that's a red flag because the world hates the truth. The world hates the message of Christ, the call to repentance. So we identify those who probably will end up being false by seeing that the world listens to them and, and loves them and, and draws them in. And it's not just the world, but it can also be, friends, hear this, worldly-minded people in the church. So let's guard our hearts. Let's guard our minds to ensure that we don't become worldly, that we're not driven by a worldly message uh, of, of victory and, and conquering and, and power in this life. We need to be driven by the call to sacrifice all of ourselves for the glory of God. Worldly teachers are evidenced by their worldly message, which is heralded and followed by worldly people. We need to resist the worldly. And that leads to the sixth imperative, the third that we've covered today in verse 6. We resist the worldly, and we need to receive the truth. John says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us, and by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So again, what's set up in verses 5 and 6, I think it's clear in the context, and most of the commentators I read agree with this, idea as well, that this is a contrast in teachers, the false prophets of the world and true ministers of God. Calvin offered this, he said, John glories here that he and his fellow ministers served God in sincerity, and they derived from him whatever they taught. Calvin continued that it happens that false prophets boast the same thing because it's their custom to deceive under the mask. Of God. Calvin then concluded, but faithful ministers differ much from them because they declare nothing from themselves and what they really manifest is in their conduct. They preach Christ, the true ministers, they preach Christ and they reveal him in their character, in their conduct. Just think about this contrast. False teachers are from the world, and they speak as though they are from the world, and the world listens to them, and the world loves them. Like Calvin identified, godly teaching is not derived from oneself. It's not one's opinion, experience, or understanding. It's derived from the Word of God. 
That is what a true faithful minister does and proclaims. Speaks not on his own initiative. Speaks not from his own authority. He speaks not his own opinion. The authority is the word of God. And this, friends, just as a kind of a side note, this is why expository teaching and preaching is really the only way to go because the main point of the text must remain the main point of everything we teach and preach because it's not about our opinion. It's not about stuffing God's truth into an idea that we want to push or pursue. It's about letting God's word speak. It's about letting God speak for himself. If you listen closely to preaching and teaching, one thing that you'll notice and note in false teachers is everything always draws back to themselves. They're the victor, the victim in every battle. They are the end of every illustration. Their opinion is often the main point of every sermon. It's not about God's word. And this is because the reason this is a flag, the reason this is how this works, is because this is how worldly people think. Right? Worldly people, they are the center of the universe. A worldly person thinks that everything revolves around them. We ought to pursue rather to be like Piper has described in John Calvin in a little biography. Piper wrote, this would be a fitting banner over all of Calvin's life and work. You ready for this? Zeal to illustrate the glory of God. That's what Piper said would be fitting to describe Calvin. You know, we think about him as this high-minded theologian. But what Calvin was passionate about, what he desired was to illustrate, to showcase, to display the glory of God. That ought to be our desire. How would our conversations change? Be honest with yourself. Assess yourself, assess those around you honestly. How would our conversations differ if our primary goal, our primary zeal was to illustrate and display God's glory at all times and in all things? There's nothing wrong about talking about what goes on in life and the things we enjoy and are doing. But does your conversation reveal a passion and a zeal to showcase God's glory in every conversation? It ought to. That ought to mark our lives. John says, we're from God, and he who knows God listens to us. We are to receive the truth. The mark of being in Christ is that you receive the truth. You have an ear, you're your heart and your mind is humbled and you earnestly desire for the word to be planted by God into your heart and his spirit to cause it to bear fruit. If you want to grow in godliness, dear friends, it begins with your desire for and your intake of the scriptures. If you want to grow in godliness, there is one great key and that is that you desire and take in God's holy word, and then by his spirit, you will grow. You have this promise that 
you are from God and you have overcome the world because greater is he than in you than he who is in the world. Take in God's word and you will become more like Christ. So we are to test every spirit. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Borrow a little bit from MacArthur to draw us to a close. MacArthur writes that the completed written revelation of the Old and New Testaments is the sole authority by which Christians must test all spiritual ideologies. The Old and New Testament is the standard by which you test everything. Scriptures are God's breathed out instruction to us, to instruct us, to train us, and to rebuke us. Think about what Peter said in 2 Peter 1. He talked about how we have the prophetic word made more sure. We've got the prophetic word, and we have the full revelation all of it coming to completion in the New Testament. And he said that word is to be as a lamp, a light, shining in a dark place until the return of Christ. Think about what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the truth of God abides forever. Think about that hymn, A Mighty Fortress. The body they may kill but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So we must stand upon the truth. We must test every spirit, every teaching, every profession, every action. We test with the goal of approving. We test them to see whether or not they are from God. We prove, test, confess the truth, we identify, and we reject the faults, and we overcome the world by receiving the truth. We overcome by receiving the truth. And when we stand in this idea that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever, may we walk in this great power that is in us, power that will obliterate the power of the world. May we receive the truth and live according to it, all for the glory of our King. Let's pray.